This morning we're going to consider Lovest Thou Me? That's the title of my sermon, Jesus asking, Lovest Thou Me? And our passage is John chapter 21, verse 8, through to the end of the chapter, the end of the John's Gospel, verse 25. Last week, we saw that seven of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ had been fishing all night long. Let's remember that those men were professional fishermen. They'd been fishing all night long in the Sea of Galilee and they caught precisely nothing. Then in the morning, a stranger on the seashore instructed them to cast their net on the other side of the ship, as if that would do anything, as if that would make any difference. Anyway, they duly complied and they filled their net with 153 fishes. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, he realised that the stranger on the land was Jesus. And he said, it is the Lord. Whereupon Peter put on his fisherman's coat and what did Peter do? He threw himself into the sea and he began to swim to Jesus. It was pointed out that Peter had been equally keen to be with the Lord on another occasion. Perhaps you're familiar of that time when the disciples were on a ship and they saw Jesus walking towards them on the water. At first they were afraid, they thought they'd seen a ghost. And then Jesus said to them, be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. It had to be Peter, didn't it, to say that. Peter then stepped out of the ship and he began to walk on the sea towards Jesus until he saw how windy it was. His face wobbled and he began to sink. However, Jesus reached out and he saved him. When you consider Peter's eagerness to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's reasonable to say that he really did love Jesus and that he wanted to be close to him. I think that much is fairly obvious to all of us, that he loved Jesus and he wanted to be close to him. Today, amongst other things, we shall continue to consider Peter's love for the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, looking again at uh, John chapter 21 and verse 8. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. Back in verse 6, we are told that the net was so full of fishes that the uh, the apostles were unable to pull the net up onto the ship, even though there were seven of them at the time. Now with Peter gone for a swim, they were left to drag the net behind them as they sailed 200 cubits, in other words, 200 forearms, in other words, 200 lots of one and a half feet, 300 feet, 200 cubits, 300 feet to the shore. (coughs) Let's have a look at verses 9 to 11. As soon then as they were come to land, 
they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye now have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three, and for all there were many, were so many, yet was not the net broken. In verse nine, it's clearly written that when the apostles came ashore, there was already fish cooking on a fire, and there was bread there. Then in verse 10, Jesus instructed them to bring some of the fish that they had caught. So, do you get that, do you? That the, Jesus is cooking fish on the coals, on the fire there, and still he asked his disciples to get the fish from the net. That has given rise to a variety of interesting explanations, such as, Jesus provided a meal for his apostles, but they still needed to supplement that meal with some of the fish that they had caught. Wasn't quite enough, in other words. Another explanation is that before having their meal, Jesus wanted his apostles to sort through the catch, to to take out the little fish that were of no use, to throw them back in the sea, and to bring the the fish ashore that were of a good size. This is how I see it. In John chapter 6, Jesus fed a multitude of over 5,000 people. 5,000 men, their wives, their children, and he fed them with just five loaves of bread and two small fishes. And that food miraculously multiplied, so much so that when everyone had eaten... And the apostles collected the fragments that were left over. They filled 12 baskets with fragments. In other words, there was more at the end, more in the leftovers, than there was at the beginning when Jesus fed the multitude. That was a clear demonstration from Jesus that he did not need anyone to supplement the meals that he provides. The meal that Jesus provided on the seashore was yet another show of his divine power. And he could have easily provided more than enough food had he wanted to. The fish that the heavenly chef was already cooking and the bread that he also provided illustrates that God supplies all our needs. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. And he does that, he does precisely that in accordance with his good pleasure. He gives us this day, he gives us our daily bread. Also in Matthew chapter 6 verse 31 to 34, Jesus said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
<coughs> it may be asked, if Jesus supplies our needs, he supplies all our needs, why then did he instruct his apostles to bring some of that catch ashore? I can't really say for sure, but I would imagine that they would have enjoyed eating what they caught. Jesus provided food, it was already there when they came ashore, but also they had to bring fish ashore, and they would have enjoyed eating that fish that they brought ashore. Perhaps even more than what was already being cooked. What they caught was just as much a gracious gift from God as the fish that was already being cooked. It was very clear that the fish they caught on the other side of their ship was a a miracle of God. Yet it came to them as a result of them being obedient to the instruction of Jesus to cast out their net on the other side of the ship. There's a lot to be said for receiving blessings from God as a result of hearing his words and being obedient to him. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. The people that Jesus knows, never mind those who claim to know Jesus, but the people that Jesus knows are the ones who hear his sayings and they do them. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, that ought to be seen in your hearing him in the scriptures and being obedient to him. The Christian who does that is a happy Christian. It is a recipe for happiness, hearing Jesus and being obedient to him. As one of the hymn writers wrote, while we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. I'm not particularly keen on those words because Jesus, he always abides with me, whether I'm obedient or not. Jesus has said, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. By faith, Jesus abides, he dwells in my heart as a Christian. It's not conditional upon me being obedient to him. I belong to Jesus, and so do you if you are a Christian, and he is with you. So I'm not really keen on those words, while we do his good will, he abides with us still. But I do like the chorus of that hymn, the chorus which has the words, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I see that as being very true. Being happy in Jesus when you trust and obey him. 
Look at verses 12 to 14 now. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. The third time that Jesus had shown himself to his disciples since his resurrection and his relation with them was now somewhat different, it would seem. For example, they knew he was Jesus. That's given to us in verse 12, but that knowing was more to do with what they had just experienced rather than them recognising his appearance. They knew he was Jesus by what he said and by what he did. That's how it is for all the Lord's people, not just those apostles who were there with him on the seashore, who had uh, witnessed that miracle, miraculous catch of fish. It's the same with all of us who belong to Jesus. We can't see him. We haven't got a clue what Jesus looks like, but we know him by his words and his gracious works. And we know with certainty It appears that none of the apostles were firing questions at Jesus. None of them seemed to be vying for the seat of honour at the meal. They just seemed to have had an intensified reverence for their Lord and that awe and wonder silenced them. Maybe at a time when you have least expected it, you too have had an experience that has, has left you knowing for sure that the Lord had been right there with you, miraculously providing for you and ministering to you. And that experience resulted in you being overwhelmed with awe and wonder. I've certainly been there. I trust others who belong to Jesus would also have that testimony, knowing that Jesus is there with them. Don't even have to look at Jesus. You don't need to know what he looks like. We know that he is altogether lovely. But we know, those who belong to him, know that he is right with us by what he says and by what he does. What he has done at the cross. Verse 15 through to 17 now. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, Son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, 
lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Going back to when the Lord Jesus Christ was um, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter denied him afterwards three times. Jesus followed the followed the Lord, and those who had arrested the Lord followed them to the temple, uh, and he denied him when he was questioned by a servant girl. He denied knowing the Lord Jesus Christ three times. And now in these verses, Jesus questions Peter three times about his love for him. He does so in verse 15, in verse 16, and in verse 17. Being questioned by Jesus about his love for him must have been very, very difficult for Peter because back in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33, Peter had boldly said to Jesus, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And in verse 35 he said, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. However, for all of Peter's bravado and his pledges of allegiance, when he was put to the test, he failed miserably, didn't he? His loyalty and his love for Jesus, far from being greater than everyone else's, gave way to fear of men and crumbled or evaporated. Jesus is the rock on which his church is being built and all who belong to him, having trusted in him as their saviour from sin, they are living stones in a spiritual building. As for that living stone whose name is Peter, his birth name was Simon. He wasn't given the name Peter at birth. He was Simon, son of Jonas. However, when Peter called him to be an apostle, he gave him the name Peter, which means stone. Therefore, Simon's identity in Christ was Peter or stone. means the same thing. However, when he was questioned about his love, Jesus didn't call him Peter. He called him Simon, son of John, thereby pointing him back to his fallen identity in Adam. For now, at any rate, he wasn't the stone. He was just Simon, son of Jonas. Peter's God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who loved him with the greatest love of all, that Calvary love, graciously and gently addressed Peter's boasting, his self-confidence and any thoughts that he entertained of being more Christian than the rest of them. And he did that by getting Peter to consider his love for him. First of all, in verse 15, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? In other words, more than the other apostles. Do you love me more than the other apostles do? 
Perhaps before his denial of um, Jesus, what do you guess Peter would have said? If Jesus had said to Peter, do you love me more than the other apostles do? Before Peter denied him, Peter would have probably said, or at least thought, yes, I do. No one loves you more than I do. I'm the one who would die with you. Even if everyone forsakes you, I won't. I'm Peter. (coughs) The stone. However, in light of what had happened, all Peter could do was say, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. In that answer, Peter acknowledged that he did not love Jesus more than the others did. He didn't mention the others, did he? But also the Greek word that has been lost in translation here, uh, it's been translated love in Peter's answer, is not the same as in the question that was put by Jesus. Peter claimed only to like Jesus or to have an affection for Jesus. As such, what we see there in um, in verse 15 What we see there in verse 15 is Jesus saying to Peter, do you love me more than the others do? And Peter saying, you know that I have an affection for you. Different, very different. It sounds like Peter was undergoing a reality check and getting a measure of his sinful heart. It's reasonable to say that he really did love Jesus, but his love was at the best Weak, it was pathetic, just like mine and just like yours. The good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ uses people whose love is weak and whose faith is wobbly. We see that to be the case with Jesus saying to weak and wobbly Peter, feed my lambs, take care of the newly converted Christians, feed their souls with the word of truth. Peter was questioned by Jesus for a second time in verse 16 about his love for him. And unlike before, there were no comparisons being made with the other apostles. Jesus simply said to Peter, lovest thou me? And again, The best that Peter could do was say, Yes, Lord, you know that I have an affection for you. You know that I like you. At which point Jesus commissioned him to minister to the sheep, to the mature Christians. And in so doing, Jesus was restoring Peter for the work that lie ahead for him. Then in verse 17, when Jesus asked Peter for a third time, Jesus didn't actually say, do you love me? Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? He said, do you have an affection for me? This is Jesus speaking and he said, do you have an affection for me? And Peter replied, Lord, you know all things, you know that I have an affection for you. 
Let's have a look at verses 18 and 19. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither, whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. After the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to see into our heart, he knows the thoughts and the intents of all our hearts. We can't pull the wool over his eyes, as we do with one another. Jesus looks straight into our hearts. You you read that description of Jesus in um, Revelation chapter 1. Eyes like flames of fire. Can you imagine the eyes of Jesus piercing and penetrating your heart and everything being laid bare before him? All your secrets being laid bare before Jesus. Anyway, Jesus asked those questions which must have cut deep into Peter's heart. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you like me? resulting in much repentance and soul-searching. And then Jesus proceeded to tell Peter how he would die in his old age, that he would not die of natural causes, rather he would die as a martyr. Last of all, in verse 19, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Jesus said that having humbled and restored Peter, And he gave him a work to do that would occupy him for the rest of his life. Talking about old age here. That is restoration, isn't it? What what mercy and grace from Jesus to the one who denied him three times. Giving him a work to do that would occupy his time for the rest of his life. Peter would glorify God by feeding souls with spiritual food. And then finally, as an old man, he would glorify God in martyrdom. It's like the crowning glory there, isn't it? Dying as a martyr. That should be every Christian's prayer. Read verses 20 to 23 now. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the disciples should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? In verse 21 there, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? This man referring to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
What shall John do? We needn't think that this was a case of Peter being an interfering busybody, perhaps poking his nose in where it's not wanted, perhaps giving voice to some kind of rivalry between him and John. We need to remember that they were close friends. Often in this book, in John's Gospel, we see the two of them together, John and Peter. They were close friends and just and, and Peter, having just been humbled and restored by Jesus and giving a work to do that would take up the rest of his life and would end in him being uh, martyred, that would be the climax of his life's work, being martyred. He was showing a genuine interest in what his what work his friend John would be given to do for the glory of God. Judging by the answer that Peter received from Jesus in verse 22, it seems that Peter was wondering whether his friend John would also die as a, eventually die as a martyr or what. However, such things were not for Peter to know. Last of all, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. The disciple being John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So that last of all, we have a testimony of the truthfulness of what has been written in John's Gospel, which started the beginning of chapter 1 with that declaration of Jesus being God. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, that declaration that Jesus is God and that he is the creator God. 21 chapters later... And what do we see here? We see the creator, God, and his tender mercy towards those whom he bled for and he died for. People like Peter and all of you who belong to him and have an affection for him. The gracious treatment of Peter by the incarnate Son of God speaks volumes about the fact that it is only by the grace of God that boastful and proud sinners are washed with his precious blood, clothed with his righteousness and preserved for as long as they remain in the world. And Jesus is with them throughout their earthly sojourn, their earthly pilgrimage, until finally they are taken home to heavenly glory to be with him where he is. So much more that um, John could have written there. What does he say? What's written at the end? I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. That's quite a bold statement, isn't it? But you think about it. All the people who know Jesus, 
all of them, the generation of people now, but before that and so on, if everybody who knows Jesus was asked to write down their experiences of their 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 walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, their their conversion testimony, how Jesus has been with them, how he has picked them up when they've stumbled and and so on, all the testimonies of Jesus being with them, his presence. And that was all collected and collated. Then quite literally, there would not, the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. But what we have there may be more than enough for each one of us, us to consider and to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, to have that fellowship with him and his sufferings and to be made conformable unto his death as people <coughs> trusting in him for the forgiveness of all our sins. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.